June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Coronavirus changed forever. Presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. So considering the fact that hardly anybody had heard of this virus at the beginning of the year, which is not that many weeks ago, how did we get into this mess? Let's talk to Ed Young, who is a staff reporter covering science for The Atlantic. He's been covering this story in great detail. Good to have you with us, Ed. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. So even though we did not know about SARS-CoV-2 three or four months ago, the warnings from you over the years, from Bill Gates, from Laurie Garrett, who was on this broadcast last week, who's been talking about lack of preparation for more than 30 years, why weren't we ready for this? I think there, so there are many reasons. I think underlying all of them is the idea that um, America, like the rest of the world, goes through these cycles of panic and neglect. And when epidemics hit, um, the nation uh, stirs itself into a frenzy and reacts. But then once the crisis abates, it becomes complacent and prepared preparedness measures slip away. And I think we've seen that here. But I think it's clear that even um, even with that, the US should have done a lot better than it currently has been doing. Um, and there are several reasons for that. Um, chiefly, um, our inability to create a good diagnostic test for this virus has truly baffled most of the health experts that I've spoken to and has really set the country back. It has jeopardized a lot of the other preparedness measures that have been put into place and allowed the virus to spread so quickly that it began to overwhelm the nation's already stretched healthcare system. Um, And on top of that, there was just no central leadership from the White House. Um, There was, uh, you know, there there should have been um, experts in place um, that could have seen this pandemic coming, but most of them had been um, dismissed over the last several years. And despite the fact that it was clear that something was brewing in China um, and that was threatening to uh, hit the rest of the world, the administration largely sat, sat idle at a time when it should have been ramping up Um, the nation's defenses. Let's go back to you mentioning the failure of testing, because I think that's something people haven't heard enough about and might surprise them, because supposedly with the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control, all the biotech and pharmaceutical companies we have in the United States, we were supposed to be more ready for something like this than anyone. But that failure of having a ready test was something so unexpected and all the simulations that were done for a pandemic... Nobody even bothered to simulate that. That's right. Um, None of the health experts I've spoken to, um, none of the people who were even incredibly pessimistic about how prepared America was or was not, considered that it might fail to produce quite a simple test for whether someone was infected or not. Um, And that failure was, it's really hard to overstate how costly it was because it meant that America was oblivious to the spread of this virus. And at the point when it suddenly realized what, what, how much testing it needed, the rest of the world is also experiencing the same need. And now everyone is competing for the same um, dwindling supplies of 
chemical reagents that are used in the tests or like nasal swabs that are used to even collect samples to test in the first place. And so we're in a situation where even now, when we're aware of the problem, testing capacity is ramping up, but so is demand and there's no net gain. So the, the nation is still operating um, in, in largely, in um, the, the nation is still largely unaware of where the virus is and how many people have it. And that that continues to be a massive problem with our ability to control this pandemic. There's been a lot of talk about the possibility of a viral pandemic, and yet our healthcare system seemed to be based on the idea not of a pandemic, even though it's been a popular idea for, for movies, mostly about people becoming zombies, but also more serious movies. Our healthcare system for disasters seemed to have been totally predicated on local disasters, things like tornadoes, earthquakes, floods, where medical supplies from one state that did not need those kinds of supplies at that moment could easily send them off to another. Something where there was this national need seems to have been one of the failures of our preparedness. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Now, to an extent, you can understand why a hospital is not going to have a ton of beds or equipment or protective gear just sitting idle on a shelf um, in event of a rare catastrophe. So there is some logic to this idea that you would you would build in the ability to surge and for um, safe sa- safe states to help um, beleaguered ones. But that system clearly does not work in a situation where all 50 states are affected, which is the situation we're in because we haven't been able to test widely. Um, the uh, the emergency um, plans for America's hospitals also don't really allow for long, protracted, stuttering illnesses, which is what we're facing now. We're facing only the first wave of this pandemic. And once we um, beat it down, it will probably come back. And that is going to pose a huge challenge to our hospitals. Like Not only are states competing with each other in the absence of any clear direction from the federal government, but countries are now competing for the same supplies too. So drugs are running out. Um, we're still lacking important things like masks and protective equipment for the doctors and, work- the doctors and nurses on the health, on the front lines. Um, there are other patients who were meant to be getting medical procedures right now, treatments for heart failures and cancers who are not being treated, who will then need to be treated once this first wave of the pandemic is over. So our our initial problems, the lack of testing, the, 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 the stretched nature of the healthcare system are just going to compound and roll on into the future in ways that I think the administration is still not fully grappling with or preparing for. Ed, we all have high hopes for a vaccine. We've talked about it on this broadcast in previous weeks about the problems we have in using that vaccine and preventing something that's contagious because we have to use it all around the world. But we're dealing with a coronavirus, and the history has been that we haven't really come up with vaccines against coronaviruses. The common cold can be a coronavirus. How big a problem will it be to develop such a vaccine? Um, you know, I don't think coronaviruses are necessarily harder to create a vaccine for than, than anything else. It's just that um, until now, there just hasn't been the need. Um, the, the profit margins are tiny because most coronaviruses are very mild. And the ones that aren't, like the original SARS, are very rare or seem to be easily controlled. So now we're having to start from scratch in a situation where no vaccine exists. And even if people speed things up as much as they can and are very lucky it will probably take 12 to 18 months to make one. And so until that time, we are stuck in this weird game of whack-a-mole with this virus. You'll beat it down, it will, um, society will relax and reopen a bit, and the virus will come back. And that will necessitate further rounds of control, of surveillance, maybe of social distancing. Uh, 
we need to understand that this is not going to be over in the spring. The problem of COVID-19 is going to be with us through the summer, through the fall, probably into the next year. And it's going to, it, it's, not the, it's not the case that we're going to be in perpetual lockdown until a vaccine arises, but we will ne- still need to deal with the consequences of this. And I think um, listeners need to gird themselves with that possibility. Like This is not going to be a normal summer in America. Let me ask you a final question about something that's been fascinating to watch online. Some of it is due to the fact scientific guidance on this has changed over the last few weeks, but it is the use of masks. One of the things you find online is, as you've written about, everybody is an expert. Everybody you've talked to has said, that's not going to work. That's a waste of time. Oh, this will absolutely prevent COVID-19 from being developed in your system and all of that. Where are we on this? Yeah, so I, I agree that um, there's a lot of confusion and mixed messaging. So let me give you what I think based on all the experts I've spoken to. Um, the, the one thing absolutely everyone agrees on is that medical grade masks, so surgical masks and N95 respirators are absolutely necessary for healthcare workers who don't have enough of them. So if you have any donate them to people who are working on the front lines. They really do need them. For everyone else, here's the situation. A mask, whether it's one of those or a homemade mask, is probably going to have only a very tiny effect, if any, on the odds of you getting sick. It can, however, um, have a much greater effect on the uh, on stopping you from making other people sick if you are infected. And that is really important for COVID-19 because the coronavirus behind it can spread before symptoms arise. So you might be able to infect other people without even knowing that you have the virus. So a mask might be able to reduce those chains of transmission. Um, but it's really important to know that uh, most people wear the masks wrongly. So they'll fidget with them, they'll touch the front of them, they'll keep on adjusting them on and off their faces. And that might make matters worse because that might increase your own risk of infection. So by all means, wear a homemade mask if you go outside to crowded areas. Please don't fidget with them um, and definitely don't expect them to substitute for things like social distancing and all the other measures that we're practicing, hand washing, just staying away from crowded spaces when possible. Ed Young is staff reporter covering science for The Atlantic. Ed, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. CBS Audio presents Coronavirus Changed Forever. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. The White House briefings on the coronavirus epidemic are long. An hour and 45 minutes is typical. There's a lot of information in there, but what's important politically and medically? To that end, CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett has started a podcast called Debriefing the Briefing. To let us know what was important, Major, welcome. How are you doing? Great to be with you. A lot of people are frustrated right now, and let's start getting to the purpose of your podcast. Just trying to get the correct information to people is something of a challenge at the moment. It is a challenge, but there's a great hunger for it. And as you mentioned, the coronavirus task force briefings are very long. An hour and 45 is typical. That's an incredibly long time for a briefing, and particularly for administrations that, for administration rather, that has not in recent memory, meaning the last year or so, relied on daily briefings to inform the public. So it's a new format for this administration. It's a quite familiar format to previous administrations, but an hour and 45 minutes, and some of these briefings have run all of two hours and 15 minutes. 
there, we believed, was a desire to have a synthesis, a summary, a cogent, accurate, and completely straightforward summary of what happened day to day. And we are not in the business, Gil, of refereeing whether these briefings should or should not be carried on television. They're a presidential event in the middle of a pandemic, straight up news event, full stop. But that doesn't mean you can't bring journalism to that process. And we've tried to do it in the best way we can, not only with a summary of what happened and what was said, any background data that needs to be asserted to put whatever was said into proper historical and accurate context, and also bring in expert voices, either within the CBS family or outside of it. And we've tried to do that on a daily basis. One of the problems of following the briefings is sometimes we get contradictory information from different people. President Trump tries to be as positive as possible, sometimes in direct opposition to some of his medical experts. Vice President Pence, on the other hand, has been saying things like, we're going to deal with this one American at a time, one heartbreak at a time. It seems to be a much more realistic and sometimes even grim comment on what Americans are facing day to day. You know, and the president said it himself, I like to be a cheerleader for the country. That is a historically important role for any president. But this president does, and he says it in his own words. Don't don't believe me. Listen to what he says. And I've always said to people trying to evaluate President Trump, listen to what he says. This is really easy to be negative about. But I want to give people hope, too. You know, I'm a cheerleader for the country. We're going through the worst thing that the country's probably ever seen. Okay. But does that role and does that desire overstep the science or the understanding. Now, in some cases with COVID-19, Gil, the science has evolved and our understanding of how it transmits and how easily it transmits have evolved. That's why it went from four weeks ago, don't wear masks. Masks are not necessary. Masks could actually make things worse or give you something that you don't need to now everyone needs to wear them in certain circumstances where social distancing isn't possible. That's evolved. I wouldn't blame the administration for a mixed message there. I just think the science has evolved. Our understanding has evolved. But clearly, there's a visible contrast, which the public can gauge and react to in its own way on a day-to-day basis. Vice President Pence, much more sober, much more somber about the numbers and the heartache and the toll. The president, much more on the optimistic sort of leading the parade side of things. The curve is flattening. We're getting better. We're going to reopen soon. This isn't going to last forever. Just around the corner light at the end of the tunnel. That contrast is in full public view. One of the values of your podcast, Debriefing the Briefing, is the ability to talk with experts and other CBS News correspondents about what was said. One of the conversations you've had in the past week was with CBS News National Security Correspondent David Martin. It was an interesting angle I have not heard anyone else talk about, which is the effect on the Pentagon and readiness. Let's hear that. Probably the most serious impact that the virus has had on the military so far it is the suspension of basic training. That's that's like not putting the seeds in 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 um, spring. Uh, you're you're just not you're going to lose your flow of young men and women into the military, and it's now been suspended for two weeks. If that goes on for very long, uh, that will uh, mess up the system in a way that will take years to recover. David brought up an important point. He really did. And David's experience runs decades at the Pentagon in all national security issues. And that is a frontline concern for the Pentagon, because if there isn't a way to create a testing mechanism that runs through and runs rapidly and consistently through the ranks of the U.S. military, whether you're deployed or you're in basic training, those things begin to 
get fatigued internally. They begin to get stressed. And if you're shutting the pipeline off of basic training, that means we don't have throughput of new recruits into the system. One of the other issues you've dealt with on Debriefing the Briefing was with CBS White House correspondent Paula Reed, and that was talking about the World Health Organization and its failure to take what was going on in China seriously enough based on the information coming out of China and the information that was coming from intelligence sources. This is something the White House is going to have to face in dealing with this crisis as it goes along. And the president, of course, submitted a budget where he cut $3 billion out of general world health programs. We may need a worldwide effort at vaccination and cooperation, such as we had with the eradication of smallpox, where everybody got together and made sure even the poorest nations were taken care of and vaccinated to really get rid of it. Otherwise, it just keeps spinning around the world. Have you picked up anything from the briefings about the White House attitude toward health care payments, such as the World Health Organization and other groups outside the United States? So the World Health Organization already had in the president's budget submission in early February a 50% cut in its allocations. And the president also wanted to cut U.S. allocations for all global health programs by a significant amount. The World Health Organization was one of them. There are many ways in which the United States taxpayers fund global health initiatives. So that was already happening uh, in early February. And those decisions were made in October, November, December, finalized in the budget submission. So the president was already against the World Health Organization. He's bringing it up now to talk about what we want to cut in the future. I think partly for a political way of saying somebody else is to blame, removing any skepticism about what the administration did or didn't do. And because the World Health Organization is a globalist sounding organization, it's a very convenient punching bag for the president. Now, that doesn't mean the World Health Organization has wrapped itself in glory in this. It hasn't. It appears to have been unnervingly credulous of information coming out of China about transmissibility and numbers. And that credulousness, that credulity it gave China is a significant issue. And the World Health Organization is going to have to answer for that. Why were you so willing to accept assertions from the Chinese government about this? And did that willingness to accept those assertions disable you from giving accurate and important information to the rest of the world? That's a real topic. And I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But as the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said at one of the briefings recently, now is not the time. Now is not the time for recriminations. And now is not the time to ask for people to be ousted or moved out. Now is the time to focus on all remedies. And to your central question, Gil, nothing the president has said about sharing either available resources when the United States has them sufficiently suggests that he wants to do anything other than make things available if they will deal with the virus, because this is pretty clear. Like smallpox, this thing has to be dealt with and has to be dealt with globally. And you can't deal with it in one nation and not deal with it in Europe or Asia or South America or anywhere else. So there's nothing in the president's rhetoric that suggests if a vaccine is developed, it will not be widely distributed. But it can be certainly said that it will be distributed first in America. Final question, Major. You had Dr. John LaPook, the CBS medical correspondent, on debriefing the briefing in the past week. And you got to talking about hydroxychloroquine, and the, which is a treatment for lupus and other diseases like malaria. The president's been pushing it as a possible cure for COVID-19. And Dr. LaPook pointed out the information right now is anecdotal and there may be some problems. For instance, lupus and malaria patients generally don't have heart problems. COVID-19 apparently does, in some cases, attack the heart. So this particular drug, which can cause arrhythmia, may not be the right thing for some people. 
you've been covering the White House for 15 years now. Do you get the feeling sometimes at these briefings that it's hard to tell whether a normal political correspondent should be there or a medical correspondent to really report on the things Dr. Fauci and others are saying at these briefings? Yes, and it's a good question. And it's a tough question because who's in the briefing is decided by the television and newspaper and other organizations, digital uh, news organizations. And we're also kind of limited on who we can send to the briefings. We want correspondents there. We want people who are keyed in on a source level with the White House. But we also want want people who have tremendous expertise. Well, we're all trying to learn this very steep learning curve. And even the experts, the epidemiological and virologists who know this stuff and have gone to school on all sorts of other previous viruses are being surprised by COVID-19. So it's a tough thing to be a White House correspondent now because this story not only evolves, but it is deeply rooted in medicine and science. And oftentimes the most instructive and helpful parts of the briefing are sort of where the medical and scientific voices just sort of take over and say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's the best information. And it's at that level that our synthesis of the briefing and debriefing the briefing, I believe, serves its most important function. We try to focus on that as much as possible and render as clearly and concisely as possible what the scientific voices are saying, even as their knowledge base evolves over time. These conversations are now heard daily on Major Garrett's podcast for CBS Audio Debriefing the Briefing. Major, of course, is the chief Washington correspondent for CBS News. Major, pleasure to talk to you. We'll be listening each day. Thank you for being with us. Thanks so much. Be well, be safe. Coronavirus changed forever. Presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. In these times, many charities are, of course, asking for your donation, or your business may be trying to contact you with plans as to how to go ahead in this time of the virus. But what if the things you're getting are not what they seem to be? We are seeing more scammers than we have seen in a long time, because there is money and mischief to be made out there. Joss Fong is senior editorial producer at Vox, and she's been looking at some of the new wrinkles in the scam detection area. Joss, how are you? Good. How are you, Gil? Let's start with something that's maybe basic for some people, but for a lot of people still seems to be news, and that's just the plain old way that we have found somebody sending us an email seems to be from Google or the White House or eBay or whatever, and how we find out oh, that email isn't what it appears to be. How do people do that? So I think one thing that most people don't realize is that email is a really open technology. So when they created it you know, several decades ago, there wasn't any security put in place to verify the identity of the sender. And what that means is that if you use a special program, you can basically impersonate uh, any domain that you want unless that domain has put some protections in place. And what we found is that right now, while there's a huge increase in the number of phishing attacks using you know, the opportunity of coronavirus, fear, and hunger for information, that the WHO is being, the World Health Organization is being impersonated at a pretty high rate. And that's because they haven't put these protections in place to prevent that from happening. Now, here's the new wrinkle generally, and this is the thing that some people know, but a large number of people don't. You can click on the email address And instead of taking your example of World Health Organization, instead of WHO.INT, you get a bunch of jumble of letters and numbers and some guy's name in Iowa or somewhere in Eastern Europe, and you go, aha, this isn't real. So that's a good way to do it, and that will work on most of these false things, but they've gotten better. And now, even if you do that, you might get what looks like the real email, the real domain. How are they doing that? 
That's right. Yeah, there's a couple of things that people are doing. Sometimes you can look at that from field on the email and it will say some random Gmail address, something that's clearly not the organization that the sender is pretending to be. Sometimes what they'll do is they'll replace the O's uh, with zeros or the, you know, the fives and E's and, and sort of sneak the domain through that way. So it's actually wh0.int instead of who.int, which is the real domain of the organization. But there's another thing that they can do now. Um, actually, they've been able to do it for a long time, which is called domain spoofing, which is that you can they, they can use special programs to basically type in any from address. Um, so it will look like the real domain. And we've seen this, for example, in an email that came across that was from a, an email address that was donate at who.int. And they were asking for donations to help support the WHO's work fighting the coronavirus. Um, but that uh, domain was just typed in by this hacker who was trying to steal money from people who are feeling generous at this time. And so some of the email providers like Gmail and Outlook are really good at catching these kinds of emails. But what we found in our experiments was that Yahoo was still letting these through. And that's because maybe Yahoo wasn't doing as good of a job as they should be doing, but also that the WHO hadn't taken steps that are available to every organization to take to prevent their domain from being spoofed in this way. And for people who think, oh, this is maybe just small organizations or, well, World Health Organization, how much email experience might they have, that kind of thing. We're seeing this kind of scamming for the White House, for the Red Cross, for UNICEF, we're seeing these spoofs, and really good spoofs that you can't catch in the normal ways for huge organizations that have the resources to prevent spoofing. So if they have the resources to prevent this, why are they doing it? That's a really good question. I've looked into this. There's, a, there's some research that's been published basically interviewing organizations to say, why haven't you put these in place? And what, what they hear is that it, it just takes a little bit of work. You know, you have to make sure you know all of the verified emails, the legitimate emails that an organization is sending. And these days, as organizations hire third-party vendors and have, you know, maybe a marketing company sending emails for them, it can get really complicated. And some companies have decided that they just don't want to deal with that at this point. So I get something. It says it's from a charity doing good work at this time, whether it's the World Health Organization, the Red Cross, or any of a number of other groups that are working right now. And if the scamming of a domain has become so good that even if I do the usual thing of clicking on the email to see if it's something that looks weird or not, and it still looks good, how do I know that I am giving to the real organization? It's really hard because what they can do is they set up that link to donate, and then they can create a page that looks exactly like a real donation page. So what you have to do if you get an email soliciting a donation and you're inclined to donate, which I think a lot of us are at this time, is instead of following any link through your email, you go to your browser and you type in that organization's, um, you know, you can search for them on Google or type in their address and go straight to their website and then follow their, their donation path from there. They'll probably be, you know, advertising it on the front page of their website. And then you can be much more certain that the, your money is going to where it's supposed to go. But you're right, this type of attack, I think is probably the most vile that we're seeing right now, which is really taking advantage of human generosity and solidarity at a time like this. It's really despicable that there are people out out there trying to take advantage of this moment. It really is in terms of wanting to give. It brings up the Dickens quote from Tale of Two Cities. It is the best of time, people wanting to give. It is the worst of time, people taking advantage of them. Josh Vong is senior editorial producer for Vox.com. Josh, thank you so much for being with us and helping us get through this mess. Thanks for having me. This is the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. CBS Audio presents Coronavirus Changed Forever. 
Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. Well, the saying goes, art imitates life, but sometimes life imitates art. On April 1st, blockbuster movies like Jumanji and Harry Potter were getting their butts kicked by the number one streaming video on-demand movie in the country, according to Fandango Now. And that is the thriller based upon real science called Contagion. Pandemic specialist Larry Brilliant explained why he made the film on the Soul of the Nation podcast. Uh, A group of friends of mine and I decided that we wanted to do something to make people realize what a real pandemic is like. So we made this movie called Contagion. We made that movie to show people what a real pandemic would look like, the social dislocation, the difficulty of making the vaccine, the hucksters that would try to game the system and the heroes. Here with us to talk about the movie Contagion and other such films is Washington Post chief film critic Ann Hornaday. Ann, good to have you with us. Thank you, Gail. So interesting how this movie that kind of came and went was seen by a bunch of people but it certainly wasn't one of the most talked about movies of the year is now has everybody watching it i guess the the first question before i get to anything else is is it worth it oh for sure definitely um it's it's a very expertly executed pandemic thriller disaster movie that's part of a grand tradition of american disaster movies but done in that way that um, Steven Soderbergh, the director, sort of perfected with the movies Traffic and Syriana, where he tracks multiple stories at once in a way very lucid and easy to follow. And then his screenwriter, Scott Z. Burns, um, they had just done a movie called Informant together, which was kind of a dark satire about a real-life whistleblower. And, and in this case, it was once again a, fact, a very, very strongly fact-based movie. I mean, Scott Z. Burns is a consummate researcher. And um, so it has this kind of cogent, very cool aesthetic design to it. And, and, and it has Soderbergh's kind of cool voice that's really packed with kind of uncannily prescient information. Yeah, exactly. The the goal, as we heard Larry Brilliant talk about it a, a moment ago, was kind of not just to entertain, but to kind of give people a, a heads up about this. And you always wonder whether it's a success. You know, it's so true. And, and I was kind of casting my mind back to some of the, the, the movies in our past that have motivated people. Um, you know, I'm thinking of movies like The China Syndrome. I feel like that actually did because it was so close to Three Mile Island. It had been... Movies like um, the kind of double whammy of the documentary Inconvenient Truth and and the kind of crazy day after tomorrow disaster pick, um, I think also kind of moved the needle a little bit. But yeah, to your point, you don't really know what it's going to take for audiences to to actually act. Um, Right. I mean, with Contagion, I'm not exactly sure what people could have done differently the next day other than worry more. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was surprised. So I went into the Internet Movie Database and put in words like, you know, plague and epidemic and figured I'd get, you know, eight or nine movies, forgetting that's how every zombie movie in the world has started. Oh, there's a virus. But I, the, the thing was huge. There was a Dustin Hoffman film called Outbreak. There was a, a South Korean film called Flu. Uh, there was a movie, A Quarantine, that's another horror film, which most of these are. A virus turns people into bloodthirsty uh, killers and all that kind of thing. But uh, this has been a theme. I mean, going back to, like, early television, I found Naked City episodes and things that were kind of about a typhoid Mary type going around spreading disease. For something that only happens every so often, 
this has been kind of a recurrent theme over the years. Yeah, and I mean, it kind of has all the earmarks of successful boogeyman because it's, you know, you can kind of make it whatever you want. It can come from outer space. It can come from nature. It can come from the lab. It can come from the, you know, it serves. It's almost like every era has the contagion of its time. So it can be, you know, the Andromeda strain was part of the 70s political paranoid thriller era, you know, so it can kind of morph, you know, like a virus itself, it can it can change and mutate to the narrative needs and the symbolic needs of whatever era. And what's interesting to me, to your, you know, it was to compare outbreak and contagion, because their contours are so similar, but their voices are really different. And they're as they're kind of um, language, you know, the visual language, the emotional language, you go from this kind of I would say like a, a more of a conventional disaster pick to this Soderberghian ultra rational, you know, I mean, they both celebrate competence, but I feel like the, con- you know, we've entered this era in, in lots of different movies. Like I think of, you know, movies like the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty that really elevate the competence of operators, you know, that and expertise. And it's kind of, they try to strip away bombast and they try to strip away, um, sensationalism to really just kind of focus on the human elements of of competence and um, expertise, and so it's and and again, Scott Z. Burns and Soderbergh just did that in their last movie called The Report, you know, about a government researcher who's getting to the bottom of a story. So the, it's kind of a toned down, unhistrionic visual and and emotional language that's really focused just on the actual you know actions of a, a super intelligent, competent person. I know movies are your beat, not TV, but there was a television show, unfortunately only lasted two seasons, even though the reviews were raves, I guess just not enough viewers, that uh, J.K. Simmons was in called Counterpart. And it was about, you know, parallel universe that was in complete parallel and our lives were all the same. And then a connection was made and the other parallel universe with the same one of us and everything get an epidemic from us that they do not have immunity to. And so you see kind of two cultures. One, it's like everything is as it was just a couple of months ago here. And then this other society where everybody's wearing masks and everybody's being told not to touch anything. And it is eerie watching that show, which is just from a few years ago in, in the present culture. Do you know what? I was a huge fan of that show, and this is the first time I'd actually made. I've I hadn't even made that connection, and you're exactly right. I want to now. I want to watch. I was recommending it to everyone at the time because I just thought it was so brilliant. Um, and I hadn't even. I was kind of focused on the the uh, espionage and tradecraft. And you're right. You're so exactly right about that. Now I, I'm going to run back and watch it again. I highly recommend it. It's brilliant. If we can end this on kind of a hopeful note from movie, and again, novel history, it was a movies, actually two movies, one made back in the 50s, I think, or early 60s, and then one remade with uh, Tom Cruise not that long ago, War of the Worlds, based on the H.G. Wells novel, where people were actually disappointed in how the movie ended because in that movie, viruses saved humanity because the aliens had no immunity to it. And even though our weapons couldn't work, these little things that we couldn't see, which are troubling us right now, were fatal and saved the human race. Well, I mean, I do think it kind of gets back to this this competence um, and belief in science and belief in progress. And even though right now we're kind of in the middle of it and it looks and it's very difficult to see the edges, we will get treatments. We will get a vaccine. It's gonna it's gonna take a while, and there's gonna be a lot of suffering and and loss, um, human loss, and also economic and financial and cultural loss. I would imagine. 
social loss. But um, but we it, you know we will turn that corner, and then if life doesn't go back to what we think of as normal, we will we will proceed. You know, and uh, with some things change and other things going back to the way they were, but the life and death stakes won't be quite so um, pronounced. So I guess that's the you know that's we'll once again, you know, we won't be fighting the microbes as much as taming them again. And then with luck, we'll be a little bit wiser for the, the next one, which I do think now we can all accept is probably inevitable. Ann Hornaday is chief film critic of the Washington Post and author of Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. And thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Gil. Thanks for having me. I'm Gail King. The coronavirus pandemic has us all very worried. Join me with Anthony Mason and Tony DeCopel as we try to help make sense of it all on CBS This Morning. Coronavirus changed forever. Presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome back to the coronavirus special Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The title of this broadcast says we are changed forever, and we haven't addressed that quite enough. So let's do that now. When this began, there was hope of what was called a V-shaped recovery. In other words, the upward economic trajectory would be as happily steep as the sad downward one has been. But now there's doubt about that. And it's not just pessimism or cynicism. Some businesses, like major department store chains, seem to be barely holding on even in good times. And with their heavy debt load and the greater reliance on online purchasing, some may just not come back. We can't save jobs without saving businesses, and we can't save jobs or businesses if people have lost their ability to buy anything because of loss of income. And that makes what's in the upcoming second stimulus bill extremely important. Bob Greenstein is president and founder of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. He says the next bill should do what was done short-term in the 2008 recession, which was to raise SNAP benefits, still better known as food stamps to many, by 15 to 20 percent. And he says there's a reason you have to concentrate on people of lesser means right now, and it's not just to be charitable. You have to keep purchasing up so businesses can sell their goods and services and don't have to lay people off. Now, if we were to give a big tax cut to very wealthy people, they would not spend that much of it. They largely save it because they're already wealthy. They don't need, they don't live paycheck to paycheck. When you increase the SNAP benefit, by contrast, the research shows low-income families spend virtually 100% of the increase in the benefit, which means the money gets into the economy quickly, it keeps up consumer purchases, and it leads to businesses laying fewer people off than they otherwise would. So it's just a winning policy in a recession all the way around. However, this comes at a time the administration planned on further cutting the SNAP program. So whether that can get into a new stimulus bill is questionable. Greenstein's point, though, is that even though loans to businesses are good and necessary, if you don't also increase purchasing power, then all you get are businesses that have more debt and an inability to find buyers to sell more goods to, so they end up going out of business anyway. Greenstein also thinks stimulus checks, though not available to people in the country illegally, should be available to their American citizen children, who would otherwise be eligible for checks of $500. His thinking is wherever we stand long-term on such issues, right now we need to think out of the box and pragmatically to make sure the economy can recover. 
already being talked about in Washington for the next bill are more stimulus checks, hazard pay for health care workers, mail-in and absentee voting expansion for the November election, infrastructure money to create jobs to replace those that are lost, and even help to states for new computers to replace systems still using outmoded COBOL programming, causing computers handling the high number of unemployment claims to crash. On the other side of this, some things will be changed forever. We may be so used to Zoom meetings that companies no longer want to spend money on hotels and airlines for get-togethers and might even cut back on the office space they lease as people get comfortable with working at home. There will be a time after this epidemic. The question is what things will indeed be changed forever. This has been the coronavirus special, Change Forever, produced for the CBS Audio Network by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.